Good morning. I'm glad to be worshiping with you here today. Again, discovering God's wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom, if you remember, is the same word as skill in the Hebrew. Uh, Someone who is wise is someone who is skilled. And God gives us wisdom for life. He gives us skill for life, not just for the original audience that he was writing this book of Proverbs to, but really for all generations. These are things that, uh, that are meant for every human being to, uh, to receive and, and think about and process and, and live by, regardless of what generation you're in. It is timeless wisdom for today is what we're calling it. Proverbs is God's way of making that, that wisdom very accessible for us to hear very accessible to remember. Now, if you remember, uh, the, the book of Proverbs was written in the ancient culture, which means that literacy was not a common thing. And so they needed, to, uh, they needed a way to remember stuff, and that's why the, the Proverbs were written, to be this short, catchy, nice way of saying things. Proverbs is God's Twitter. It's the way that he just kind of packages uh, big truths in small sentences. And we can all appreciate this. We all love Proverbs. That's something that's very common in our modern day because we just like catchy lyrics. Here are some modern Proverbs that I like uh, that uh, aren't as common as, uh, as you might think. Um, one of them is, uh, sorry, I don't have them on the slide, sorry. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Kind of makes you think. It kind of makes you appreciate the, the, the sentiment behind that. If you dig a hole for someone else, you'll fall into it. It's like a nice uh, illustrative kind of warning about uh, malicious intent and stuff. It's better to have a friend in the market than a hundred gold coins in the chest. Build a man a fire, he'll be warm for a day. Set a man on fire. He'll be warm for the rest of his life. That's not supposed to be in here. This reminds us that Proverbs are catchy and memorable. You have to stop and think about them. You have to play with them in your head. You have to kind of move them around and go, when is that true and how can I live by that? How do I apply that? The book of Proverbs is God's way of giving us this timeless wisdom, the skills for life, in, in terms of how we relate to one another and how we deal with the responsibilities uh, that are around us. And they're relevant and important for every generation. They're packaged in these nice little one-liners, or maybe the, the, uh, the better word is a couplet. It's usually a two-liner, really. It's a couplet. Uh, but uh, they're short, they're catchy, they're sentimental, they're profound. And it, it, it isn't practical to go through the book of Proverbs from beginning to end, from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the very end of chapter 31. It's not practical to do it that way because these are just a collection of Proverbs that don't have to do with one another. Starting in chapter 10 all the way through 30, it's just a bunch of these Proverbs that are put next to each other, but they don't have a a succession. They're, They're not in a sequence. It's like someone just piled up all the fortune cookie messages and then stuck them together, wrote them all down. But you don't have to read them in any particular order. So it doesn't make sense to try to go from, uh, from beginning to end of the book. Instead, it's better to group them up into topics, which is what we're doing. And, uh, and I've collected these topics, and the topic we're going to talk about today is the topic of friendship. It's a topic I think everyone knows about. It's a topic that everyone needs wisdom on. A friendship... Not that you need a definition, but a friendship is a relationship that you build in order to have a sense of belonging and trust and support and camaraderie, like fun, enjoyment. You know, 
it's camaraderie. Every friendship offers enjoyment or fun. It's always, a, it's always a pleasure to have a friendship. Every friendship offers that. But not every friendship is good for you. Not every friendship is good for your soul. And that's something that every parent thinks about in regards to their children. Right? I, I don't want my child to make the wrong kinds of friends. There, friendship is everywhere. Fun is everywhere. Camaraderie is everywhere. But there are friendships that are bad for you. And there are friendships that are good for your soul. So that's why we need wisdom on this. So here's our roadmap if you're taking notes, okay? We're going to take it in, uh, in four parts uh, and, uh, and, and then a conclusion. So we'll go uh, four movements and then a conclusion. Uh, and uh, the first one is going to be, why do I need friends? Why do I need friends? The second one is a list of nine things on what makes a bad friend. Nine things, what makes a bad friend? Uh, the third one is a list of four things. What makes a good friend? What makes a good friend? And then the, uh, the next one is um, how, do you, how do you grow a good friendship? How do you grow a good friendship? But that'll be a list of four things too. And then we'll have a conclusion. The conclusion will just kind of wrap everything up. So that's, that's our roadmap. That's, that's where we're going to go. Let's start with this, this question. Why do I need friends? Most people believe they need friends, so I don't feel like I need to convince you on this, but some people feel like they don't. I don't need friends. I'm fine by myself. I'm perfectly happy. So this question, or this little, this little moment here, is for these people. After all, when the COVID-19 pandemic put the world into a lockdown, uh, everybody is isolated, they're stuck at home and stuff, and there are certain people, and I'm sure you've heard of them, they say, I liked it. I'm fine. I'm unaffected by this. I'm totally okay. It's not a big deal to me. And, uh, and then they'll proudly wear the badge of introvert, you know. They'll, they'll say, I'm, I'm, I'm such an introvert that it didn't even bother me and stuff. And I'll start by saying that that simply is not the picture of heaven that God has in mind. That, was, that is not even remotely close to the design that God made for man or for woman. Genesis 2.18, if you remember, it says, Then the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital letters, Then Yahweh God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, so I'll make a helper fit for him. It's not good that the man should be alone. And this is before sin entered the world. This is in a perfect world with a human being originally designed in the image of God without any stain or blemish, no defect, nothing wrong. And God says it's not good that he should be alone because God is a community. One God, God, exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He himself is a community. That's one of his, his uh, attributes of his nature. And so he's installed that into our nature that we, as individuals, also need to be part of a community. That's how everything began, and that's also how everything will end up. Everything will end up with God among his people, and they will be a community. No one will be by him or herself. If you pay even the smallest amount of attention to the Bible, you'll see the whole emphasis is on loving God and loving whom? Your neighbor, right? That, that simply can't be done by yourself. It is an unmistakable condition of, uh, of doing something in relation to another human being. 
You have to be in strong relationship with one another. You can't love, serve, forgive, trust, strengthen, teach, correct, or encourage without another person there. Unless you, unless you buy what the world tells you. You know the world tells you you have to love yourself. You have to forgive yourself. You have to trust yourself. This is all the stuff that, that the unbelievers will, uh, will they'll write it up and they'll give it to the church, uh, give it to the whole world. And, and then Christians will eat that up and say, oh, yeah, 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 I just have to forgive myself. As if we're judge, an arbitrator. We're not. All that advice is from unbelievers. All of that is, is uh, from earthly, unspiritual, and demonic sources of so-called wisdom. God never says any of that. God says this about uh, anyone who calls him or herself a Christian. If you call yourself a Christian, this is what God tells you. 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 12, he says, For just as the body, the physical body, is, is one body and has many members or many parts, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Okay, so what he's saying here is, if you're a Christian, you now belong to what he calls the body of Christ. Right? Christ is the, the head, the thoughts, and, and, the, and the, the action, and the will. We are the hands and feet and the body parts in order to carry out what he decides. So, verse 14 says, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And it's this wake-up call that you are not a lone, a lone Christian. You're not meant to just function kind of by yourself and be okay. Verse 21 says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Like, he warns against this mentality, like, I don't need church, I don't need other friends, I don't need that kind of a community. He warns about this. Verse 24, he says, but God has so composed the body, verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And he's talking about how we are so intertwined and so connected to one another that when one of us is sad, all of us are sad along with that person. And when one, of, one person is overjoyed, we're all overjoyed. That comes only when you're connected in a healthy kind of relationship. There is this undeniable togetherness, a oneness that believers of Jesus Christ are to obey and reflect in their lives. And if you think you don't need friends, you don't need church, you don't need anyone except your family, that itself is a sinful thought. It does not come from the Holy Spirit. It does not come from heaven. If you say, I have no need of you to the body of Christ, if you say, I have no need of you to, to, uh, to friendship in general, that all translates to just simply, I have no need of you to Jesus himself. Because that's his body and it's his friendship that you also reject. You either need Jesus, which includes his body, which is the church, or you believe you don't need Jesus and consequently don't need the church. You can't separate your love for God and your love for your neighbor. You can't separate that. There's wisdom in it too. Practical value to having friends. Look at Proverbs 27, verse 10. It says, don't forsake your friend or your father's friend. Don't go to your brother's house in the, in the, in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who's far away. 
That's like a weird saying. Like in English, it's kind of clunky and stuff. I think in Hebrew, maybe it flowed better back in that day. But it's just saying that a day will come when you're going to need friends. And having a friend nearby is better than having a relative who's far away. Like you want to have a good company of friends who are there for you in your hour of need, in every context of your life. It's a suggestion to have friends at every moment, in every place, people to help you wherever you're at. Something that's true of every human being is uh, you're, you're either friends with God and God's people, or you're friends with the world and the world's people. That can't be avoided. Friendship, which is that sense of belonging, that relationship of trust and support and camaraderie, all of that, right? Friendship will be with God or with the world. And here's what James chapter 4, verse 4 says. You adulterous people, and he's rebuking his audience, he's saying, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that tells you that you can't have both and that there is no middle ground. Scripture never leaves room for that. You're either on the broad road to destruction or on a narrow path that leads to life. And everyone on the narrow path sticks together because, frankly, it is war out there. You need friends, and it's not that you need lots of friends necessarily. Uh, that's, it, it's not this big push to just try to grab as many friends as you can as frantically as possible. It is not that. You need friends that are good for your soul. You want as many of those as possible. Not any kind of friend, but the kind of friend that's good for your soul. Look how the Proverbs speak of certain people who have lots of friends, and yet it's not a good thing. Look at Proverbs chapter 14, verse 20. It says, The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. And then in 19, verse 4, it says, uh, Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. Now, implicit here is the comment uh, about the danger and the futility of certain kinds of friendships. And it uses wealth as like the example. When you have a lot of money, all of a sudden you have a lot of friends. Because people want something from you. This is a warning. It's a suggested warning on people who want to be your friend, not to be good for your soul, but to be good for their well-being. They want to gain something, take something from you. There are many friends who are there because of what they want from you, not because they actually care for you. And so it's saying, you know, when you're poor, they're all going to leave. When you have money, they're all going to be there. And it warns you about those kinds of friends. On the other hand, there are Proverbs that speak of the matchless value of a good friend. Proverbs 18, verse 24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There are two insights on this, right? First is that the quantity of friends is not as important as the quality of friends, right? Even a person who has many friends, many companions, many friends, can come to ruin because maybe they weren't good friends. But there is a type of friend who sticks closer than a brother, right? And so that, that first insight is that the quantity is not as important as the quality. But a second insight is that there is such a thing that exists, a friend who is more reliable than a family member, in our society, that's not really much of a surprise. Family values are so broken that relatives are just as much the targets of hate 
as they are the, uh, the objects of love. It's, it's, uh, it's not weird to find out that someone hates their parents or hates their siblings these days. That wasn't what it was like in the ancient societies from which uh, King Solomon wrote the Proverbs. You know, family was the truest relationships back then. And yet, even in that context, he says, friends can be even more helpful when you really need it. They can be more valuable than certain relatives. No matter who your friends are, you influence one another especially if you spend a lot of time together. The more you, you uh, message one another, talk to each other, meet up and go hang out and all that kind of stuff, the more time you spend together, the more you start to meet in the middle of, you know, of if, like think of it like temperature. Someone could be warm, someone could be cool, and then they, they kind of middle out a little bit. You know, you don't become exactly like one another. Some friends do. You can kind of tell like, oh, that's a copy-paste situation. But other friends, they maintain their certain distinctiveness and stuff, but a rhythm sets in. Now, we say this about a lot of married couples, right? They start to look alike, don't they? Right? But when they're dating, they didn't look alike, so why do they start looking alike? It's because their mannerisms start to kind of middle out. They, they use their facial expressions the same way, or they, they, they laugh the same way, or at the same things, and we, we start to get reminded of one another. That's why it's so important for you to choose the right friends, because you do have an influence on one another. Proverbs 12, verse 26, it says, One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. That means that if you have a righteous friend, that guides you in righteousness. And if you have a wicked friend, that leads you into wickedness. In fact, Proverbs also talks about what happens to the righteous and to the wicked. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 20. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Now watch this. It, it means, uh, th well, this is why friendship matters. This is what it means, okay? You'll always build relationships with someone or something in order to, uh, to have in your life a sense of trust and support and camaraderie, right? You'll always, you'll always look to something for friendship, even if it's not a person. It can be the internet, you know, it could be TV shows, music, your hobby, etc. But you'll look to something, for camaraderie or for support or for trust or et cetera. You'll always look for a place and a people to belong to. It'll be a team or a guild or a club or a group or a gang or a church. Build friendships that are good for your soul, friendships that guide you and lead you. Where? Well, Proverbs says to the land. The righteous will be in the land. Those with integrity will remain in it. The wicked will be cut off from the land. And it keeps talking about the land. The, the land, if you're Jewish and you say the land, Haaretz, if you say the land to them with that article, not just land, but the land, you're talking about the promised land. You are talking about the inheritance that God has promised to all his people. That's the kingdom. Jews would call it the promised land. Christians now, if you read the New Testament, you call it the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, the, the thing that Jesus comes back and establishes, right? It lasts for a thousand years, then he just destroys sin, and then it lasts forever and ever on a new earth. So it's a kingdom that lasts forever. The first thousand years are on this earth, 
and then the, the rest is for eternity on a new earth, but that's the land. Build friendships that lead you to the land. How do you build friendships that lead you to the land? Well, they've got to be connected to Jesus. You don't, there's no other name under heaven by which people are saved. Right? There's, there's no other way to do that. Build friendships that lead you to eternity with God rather than leading you astray, leading you to be cut off from the land. That would be hell. So then, everybody needs friends. Your friends uh, are, are important because they will influence you and you're going to make friends with something. And if it's going to be with the world, it'll be enmity with God. Make friends that will point you to heaven point you to the land. All right, let's talk then about uh, some of the warnings. What are the qualities of a bad friend? See, as we go through the qualities of a bad friend and the qualities of a good friend, you get to then think about your friendship. So, I mean, think of your top three friends if you have the luxury of having that many. Your top three friends. And then let's just talk about this. Let's, let's talk about these qualities and you match them up. In your head, don't, don't write it down. If they see it, they're going to be upset, right? But you match this up and see, see where they are, okay? Qualities of a bad friend. The Proverbs are simply not shy about telling you to avoid certain kinds of people. Just avoid them. Straight up, don't be friends with these people. That's what it says, okay? The first one is slanderers. Slanderers. So that's going to be chapter 20, verse 9. It says, whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with the simple babbler. Slanderers reveal secrets. They speak hurtfully about other people. They, uh, they don't care about that person's privacy or that person's dignity. That, that, uh, they don't give the benefit of the doubt. They interpret everything in a certain negative light and then spread the news. Another word for slanderer is whisperers or gossips. And uh, whether you're a slanderer or a whisperer or a gossip, you're also equated as being a liar or being dishonest. Look in chapter 16, verse 28. It says, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. Now, it says that because dishonest people and whisperers will mess with your relationship with other people because they talk about those other people. And so now they alter, they'll even take truth and put a bias to it. Just to interpret truth a certain way. Yes, this person did that, and here's why. And they, they put a spin on it. And the effect of dishonest people and slanderers and whispers is that they make you suspicious of other people. And they prompt you to accuse and hold in negative regard other people. It's a sickness in the heart. They slander against people instead of praying for even their enemies. The two cannot coexist before God. Second, angry people. Avoid angry people. Don't make friends with angry people. Uh, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 24. Okay? Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. You couldn't be more plain about it. Don't be friends with an angry person. Anger is something that's often passed down from parent to child. A child learns to have a bad temper from somewhere, and a lot of times it's from an angry parent. And of course, there's also just the personal and maybe even genetic disposition, but a lot of the behavior is also learned. Now, personally, 
I've never thought that I was influenced by angry people. I don't yell. I don't throw or break things, stuff like that. I'm, I, I'm not generally an angry person. Um, that's, and I've been around angry people, and I've never felt like that's rubbed off on me. But angry people are called angry people not just because they feel anger, but because their anger is frequent and is an overreaction. Right? That's why you call someone an angry person, because they're angry all the time, or when they get angry, it's explosive. Right? You're either talking about its frequency or its severity. And people who get angry too severely or too frequently do have an influence on everyone in spreading their discontent. Right? They, uh, even if they don't make you start yelling and throwing things and stuff like that, it still spreads a certain sense of discontent. Beware of the angry person who, uh, who makes you look at stuff and then realize how much you don't like it. Right? That's not good for you. That breeds a complaining heart. And on, uh, on top of that, beware of the angry person who denies responsibility for his hurtful words or behaviors. Right? You're accountable to what you say. You're accountable to what you do. Look at uh, Proverbs 26, verse 18. Like a madman who throws firebrands and arrows and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. That's the friend who says awful things or does horrible things and then doesn't take responsibility. Just pretends, well, I was just joking or it wasn't a big deal. And you just, you just think, I, don't, I didn't mean it. Like, you're, you know, why are you, why are you making a big deal out of it when it was not a big deal to me. And they deny responsibility. They don't take care of the fact that they've done hurt to someone. They dodge that. And they go, well, that's your fault for being sensitive. That is not the kind of person that is good for your soul. That anger is, is not godly anger. It's a sinful anger. And there's no benefit in being friends with someone who will teach you that. Third, stingy people. Stingy people. I feel like I don't need to talk about this much because, like, if you know someone's stingy, you tend not to be friends with them because, you know, then they keep asking you to pay them back and stuff, right? Like, no one likes to be around that, but let's do it anyway. Proverbs 23, verse 6. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies. For he's like one who's inwardly calculating, eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Verse 8, you will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. That's an interesting thing to say because he invites you to come over and, and, uh, and have dinner. And he's like, eat and drink. And, but then he's calculating and he's realizing how much he's giving you and stuff. He's not giving you from his generosity. He's keeping count of how much he gave. And then later on, he's like, I gave you this much and you didn't even give me anything. And he's keeping this account. I mean, we, we've seen this happen, right? Relationship ends between a boyfriend and a girlfriend, and then like one of them demands all the stuff that they gave back. Give it all back. I, you know, I, I gave you that pillow. Give me back that pillow. It's, it's a weird thing. I give you that stuffed animal. Give it back. That's weird. But people do that. They, they got this thing. Like, like they're keeping accounts. You know, the, the, the kind that says, I've spent this much on you in our relationship. Pay me back now. Avoid stingy people. Fourth, stubborn people. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10 says, By insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. And then chapter 18, verse 1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire, 
he breaks out against all sound judgment. Okay, now, think about this here. The word stubborn is not used here, okay? And I said, you know, the category we're talking about is stubborn people. So it doesn't say stubborn here. It uses words like insolence, which describes one who just won't listen to good advice, someone who, uh, uh, who treats people poorly, who should, you know, people who should be treated well or should be appreciated, they treat poorly. Uh, these people isolate themselves, not necessarily physically, but they separate from people who offer wise counsel. Right? People who give good advice, they don't want to hear it. The people that try to point them in a good direction, they'll, they'll be mean to them. They'll, they'll regard such people as stupid, annoying, out of line, etc. They will not listen to good counsel. This is pride. This is presumptuousness. This is arrogance. There are a lot of words for it, but all of it really just means they won't take good advice. And so I just think the best word for it is stubborn. They just don't like to hear a good suggestion because they hate the fact that it makes them feel wrong. And so they stick to wrong so that they feel like they're right. That's stubborn. Fifth, argumentative people. Proverbs 26, 21 says, As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. Right, this is a person with an unfriendly, antisocial attitude. Right? They cause debates. Or even if they didn't cause debates that they're involved with, they get involved in other people's debates. They hear two people debating or arguing or something, and they get in there and like, what's going on? And then they, they try to, you know, they butt in, try to take over, and they, they kind of like this idea of verbally combating someone else and making the other person feel stupid. They get a sense of power by demeaning another person, a sense of rightness by pointing out someone else's logical wrongness as far as they see it. And this happens a lot with people who, uh, who love theology more than they love God. And I kind of feel like the more you learn theology, there's like this phase where people go through that. You, know, you want to flex your muscles, and so you start to become argumentative. And you have to be very, very careful about that. It has to be matched with humility. If argument is done without prayer, without love, and without humility, it's a pretense for truth when really it's a ploy for division. It's a lot of words, I know, but... It's on the recording. You can slow motion that. Number six, emotionally insensitive people. Emotionally insensitive people. And so, uh, says the preacher very nervously, because uh, that would be me. Uh, Proverbs 25, verse 20. Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. Incredible. <laughs> uh, what? This is talking about, you know, because what's wrong with singing songs to someone who has a heavy heart? That sounds like you're trying to help them. But this is uh, someone who's trying to cheer you up without helping you process your pain. Right? It's not, like, it's not bad to sing someone a song to help them feel better, but uh, we do this with children a lot. You know, someone's feeling bad, and so you just try to make them feel good. You try to cover it up and say, no, 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 nothing bad is happening. And it's surprising to me that the Bible warns about people like this. I, I, I thought people like this, you know, who try to just cheer you up, I thought that they're well-intentioned. They're just maybe socially clumsy. You know, they don't know what to do with your feelings, and so, uh, here, feel better. That would happen in my home. I was being raised, you know, uh, if my dad uh, disciplined me, then uh, sometimes he just kind of 
went off the rails and screamed at me for something that was maybe small, you know? And then I, I went to my room, and I'm, like, crying, and I'm only, like, 18 years old. And then uh, he walks up, and, you know, and he's like, hey, what's wrong? And I'm, like, in tears, and he's like, you want pizza? <laughs> I don't want pizza. <laughs> well, I do want pizza, but... An apology would be great, or just like some kind of a connection on like, oh, yeah, I know you're sad, I didn't mean to yell at you, you know, something like that, right? But like instead, he just throws pizza at me or a movie, and so there I am just eating pizza crying, you know? And like, yes, I've got pizza, but it didn't deal with the, the infection in the heart. It's not wrong to use music when you're sad or upset, but don't use it to mask or forget your pain, that's escapism. That's what we use, like, like, you know, TV shows and stuff for. We just escape from stress and stuff, and that's a bad idea. We need to confront our feelings. We need to deal with them. The Bible is full of people who tear their robes and pour ashes and, and dust over their heads, right? It's this, uh, this sense of identifying their feelings, acknowledging their feelings, expressing their feelings, and then bringing their feelings straight to God, 70% of the psalms, and I'm not exaggerating that number, 70% of the psalms are imprecatory psalms. They're upset feelings. God, I'm upset. I'm, I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm confused. I'm frustrated. I'm scared. We don't just sing songs to, to cover that up or else they wouldn't have written those psalms. Those psalms were written so that we could connect with, identify, and express those feelings and bring it to the Lord and pray through it. And then ask for him to just kind of minister to us. If you, if you just try to throw pizza at something, you try to neutralize the feelings and, and stuff. That's what vinegar and soda does. It's the neutralizing effect, right? People who try to cheer you up without dealing with your heart. It neutralizes you. It makes you ineffective. When your heart is not sensitive, it makes you hard-hearted. You can't be compassionate if you don't know how to understand your own pain. And you can't help minister to someone else's pain if you don't know how to minister to your own. Plenty of people who counsel do not get counsel themselves. And there's a disease in that. And it does catch up to you. All right, seven. Avoid making friends who are disloyal. Again, this one feels obvious. If they betray you, don't be friends with them. That makes sense, right? But 25 verse 19, it says, Trusting in a treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. That's treacherous. That means deceitful or disloyal. Traitorous, right? Don't have traitorous friends. I, I kind of feel like you know that. But why does a person end a friendship? Because here's the thing. You never think that your friends are treacherous. You never think that your friends are disloyal, right? You think, well, we're friends, so they'll be loyal. So ask, ask yourself this question about your friend. Why does your friend end a friendship with someone else. Look at the pattern of their lives. How many friendships have ended and why? Why does a person leave a job? Why does a person leave a church? Why does a person break up or get a divorce or whatever? What does it take for this person who makes a promise or an oath, what does it take for this person to just say, never mind, I take it back. I don't mean it anymore. I do not have to keep my promise. Beware of the person whose loyalties are so flexible. You cannot rely on such a person. They aren't good for your soul. Now, all seven of these uh, have come from the Proverbs. I'm going to give you two more just for a bonus 
uh, from the New Testament, right? Two more people to avoid. Uh, number eight would be a fake Christian, a fake Christian. First Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. It says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, meaning calls himself a Christian. Don't associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So there's this big talk, and if you go into the Corinthians series, we can, you can hear more about that. But avoid people who call themselves Christians but refuse to change course from a lifestyle of immorality or greed or idolatry, reviling, drunkenness, swindling, etc., See, when you're dealing with unbelievers, you should just expect them to act like unbelievers. When they're being awful, uh, then they're being awful. When they're being sinful, they're being sinful. And your job is just to call them to repentance and to trust in Jesus because it'll be better. But when you're dealing with someone who says he or she is a Christian, they should act like Christians. They should act like Christ. And when they don't, you call them to repent. And if they won't, if they refuse, that's a faker. There's a difference between someone who's struggling with sin and someone who's living in sin. If the person defends the sin, they're living in it. If the person confesses the sin, asks for prayer, accepts accountability, that's repentance. Now you watch for that, and you see whether or not this is someone who just calls himself a Christian or someone who says, I want to die to myself and I want to live as Christ. Ninth, finally, the kind of friend to avoid is uh, a teacher that doesn't believe in a life-transforming gospel. This is a false teacher. Teachers that don't believe in a life-transforming gospel. In 2 John, verse 9, there's only one chapter to it. Uh, in 2 John, verse 9, it says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So what John has said so far, he's like, people who leave church aren't Christian. That's it. That's it. It's not a, oh, he's probably going through something. No, people who do not abide, who they go on ahead, they move on to something else. They do not abide or remain in the teaching of Christ does not have God. They're not a Christian. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So the one who remains repentant and trusting in Jesus, that's a person who's saved, okay? So that's, that's where John starts. He, he, he tells you that, okay? That's what a Christian is. If you have the gospel, it is life-transforming, and it is lifelong. You cannot lose your salvation. If, if ever it seems like you lost your salvation, you never really had it. Saving faith is a permanent structure in your soul. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Forever, whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And what John's saying there is avoid teachers who do not teach that saving faith is a permanent life-transforming quality. Even greeting them is partaking in their work. If they start saying everyone's saved, even those who fall away from church, they're saved too. Everybody can save. Salvation's easy. It's very easy. It doesn't really cost you anything. It's true. It's a free gift, but it does cost you your life. How does that work? I don't know. It means that there's nothing you have to do to be offered it. But in order to receive it, you can't live the way that you used to live. 
Everyone has access to it, but no one gets to be the same after they've received it. Jesus will take you as you are. He will not leave you as you were. Well, that's a lot on what makes a bad friend. And if, if you're like me, you're realizing you have a lot of bad friends. I have a lot of bad friends. That one over there, that one over there, you over there. This room is full of bad friends. What makes a good friend? Let's, let's uh, flip the script here and talk about what makes a good friend. And if we're being honest, we can just kind of do the opposite of everything that makes a bad friend, right? You can just kind of do that. Just, just negate all the sentences and, and uh, you'll be all right. But let's, let's look at Proverbs that directly talk about what makes a good friend. First one would be peacemakers. Proverbs 11.13 says, Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Covered, that's interesting. Uh, Proverbs 17 verse 9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Now, cover sounds like cover up. Like, shh. Don't let anyone know. That's not really what's, what's uh, meant by cover here. It, it's it's kind of like that, but makes it go away. Uh, covering an offense is the word that they would use for covering up a hole in a wall, like patching it up. You cover it. It's repairing. So it's not pretending it's not there, and it's not concealing it, but it is repairing it. Those who repair... The rifts in the relationships, those are, uh, those are trustworthy spirits. But those who keep bringing up the past to keep reopening those old wounds, those who keep holding a grudge, keeping a record of wrongs, those are the ones that, uh, that you want to avoid. The ones that you want to hold on to are the ones that cover, repair a rift in the relationship. And I like the way that the Hebrew says it uh, in, uh, in that last verse. It says, uh, he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Close friends in Hebrew is one word, and it means bosom companions. It's like a compound word. It just sticks bosom and companions, which may be like our best uh, translation, but that would be soulmate, right? Your soulmate, your, your bosom companion, your close friend. Build friendships where the instinct is to cover and repair your relationship, not to slander and separate. You ever had this thing where you get into an argument with your friend, you're like, I guess we're not friends anymore. That's not healthy, right? You want the friend that says like, hey, something's wrong. We got to work this out. That's the kind of friend you want. Proverbs 17, 17 says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity, right? That means that you want a friend who's there all the time. And even a brother who when things are adverse, like, he's ready for you. He's born for this. I've, I was born ready. Let's take care of this. Let's handle it. Let's cover it. Let's repair. You want someone who loves you at all times, even when you're in a fight with one another. Fighting is just for them figuring out how to make things better. It is not, it is not at all a threat to the relationship. It is just a learning moment. Reconciliation is inevitable because they are peacemakers. Make that kind of a friend. Second, patient people. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his, it is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 20, verse 3 says, It's an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife. 
but every fool will be quarreling. Now, we really have to give this more credit. Patient people make you more patient. That is true. Not only do you get to watch them handle life in a very self-controlled, reasonable manner, but they also help ground you when you're freaking out. Right, a patient person will tell you, okay, let's, let's think about this. Let's figure it out. It is an honor for someone to, to avoid needlessly getting involved in conflict, and it's an honor learning from such a person. Patient people are good friends to have because it'll make you patient. I like the way that uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman says it in his song, in all his songs, all of his songs, all of his lyrics, but... I like the way he says, if we walk with the wise, then we will be wise. And that comes out of the Bible, too. If we walk with wise, if, if you have patient friends, you'll become patient. You'll be like them. Third type of friend that you want to make is people who speak well of others. People who speak well of others. Proverbs 22, verse 11. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. This idea of purity of heart and gracious speech, it's, it, it sounds so boring to the world. Because we like crude humor, we like hurtful humor, sarcasm. That's kind of the way our, our, our society's moving right now. You know, that's the way we talk and that's what we laugh at and stuff. We laugh at things that hurt. It's the opposite of uh, purity and gracious speech. We, we, uh, we like things that are sinful, hurtful, that accuse and that mock. That's kind of just the, the, the leaning of the heart in this place. Find someone who is great at giving true, sincere, and meaningful compliments. True, sincere, meaningful compliments. And I don't mean that they just flatter people for, you know, to, uh, to seem like a good person. They, they don't flatter people for selfish gain. They give real compliments to build someone else up, to let them know they're appreciated, to let them know that, that they're doing good work or that, that uh, they recognize their effort or something like that. Just watch people who are good at saying something nice to someone else. It speaks life and it gives strength. There are those who just... Uh, who just have this inherent disposition to not trust the world, not trust anyone, maybe because their childhood was just wrecked, and so they, they don't give compliments. You know, they, and, and you wrap it up in like this weird fake Christian theo idea of theo theology that says like, you know, if I compliment them, they'll become proud and arrogant. That's not true, right? You know, people don't become proud and arrogant if you compliment them the right way. And uh, like this happens a lot, you know, uh, Preacher walks off from the sermon, and someone goes up and says, uh, hey, I really like the sermon. It wasn't you. It was the Lord. That's just a weird thing. To, that's, that sounds insulting. Like, all the work you put in doesn't count. It was the Lord. And I just think, if it was the Lord, everyone would have come to Christ. Maybe, yes, the Lord is energized and stuff, but it's not like the, the person didn't do something. Matthew wrote the book of Matthew. The Holy Spirit inspired him to write the book of Matthew. Who gets the credit? Yes. Right? Like, when someone does good work, tell them they did a good work. Say, hey, good job. I saw you serving today. Right? Hey, tech team, 
I know we had technical difficulties today, but way to pull through. Right? I mean, like, just be good at at compliment. Why would you want to be bad at that? When people are good at speaking well of others, there's just strength that's given. You can say nice things for free. It costs you nothing. Right? So do that because all it does is improve things. Okay, you get the point, right? People who speak well of others improve your regard for them, and they help you from being judgmental or critical or arrogant, right? It's not just like it it helps you see someone else in a better light when, when someone speaks well of them, but it prevents you from being unfair and harsh. Make those kinds of friends. All right, fourth, finally, for... What, uh, what good qualities to have in a friend is people who give you good counsel. People who give you good counsel. Pro- Proverbs 27, verse 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Verse 6 of that same chapter says, uh, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And then verse 17 says, iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. The idea here that, that, that comes up three times in this chapter is that friends, the, the right kinds of friends will make you better at living wisely, living the way you're supposed to live. They will make you feel good about the right things. They'll give you earnest counsel, and they'll even rebuke you. You know, faithful are the wounds of a friend. The friend will come and give you a wound if you need it. They have to break a bone to set it, right? You have to make an incision to go do some surgery. So those wounds are faithful. They're good for you. They're good for your soul. Earnest counsel is just another way of saying sincere wisdom. They lovingly point you to the fear of God. They point you to the way of the Lord to trust in his ways, not to lean on your own understanding, to do things the way he says to do it, not to do things on your own. They're good for your faith. They're good for your character. They're good for your soul. These are the kinds of friendships you should build. Now then, how do you, how do you grow a good friendship? Let's just kind of talk about that real fast because you don't start off friends with everyone. You start off kind of neutral, right? I remember in high school, I had a scale. In the middle, it was like stranger or a uh, you know, like someone that you don't know. But then I had three degrees of, of friends, acquaintance, friend, and then close friend, right? Your, your bosom companion. Then you had like your three degrees of, of, of people you don't like, right? That's like the, the burden, the person that, oh, you just got mentally prepared to be around this person. You know, you get negative disposition. They're creepy or they're socially awkward or they, I don't like the way they laugh or they chew too loud or, you know, something like that, right? And then you have your enemy, like, I just wish harm on this person. And then you have, like, your nemesis, which is, like, for all my days, I wish destruction upon his soul. You know what I mean? Like, you have, you have like, your thing. You start off strangers with people. Or if you're just a negative person, you start off thinking everyone's a burden, or if you're really optimistic, you start to think everyone's an acquaintance and stuff, right? You have, like, your, your starting point. How do you get to that point where they become friends or bosom companions? How do you get to that point? I want to share a few Proverbs that tell you how to build relationships, right? Because if Proverbs, if the book of Proverbs is trying to steer you away from being and having bad friends, and is trying to steer you toward being and having a good friend, 
then all the advice in the Proverbs will help you transition from a, from a stranger to becoming a friend, to being a good kind of friend. So, four ways that you can grow a good friendship. First, don't withhold good. Don't withhold good. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. Right? Don't withhold good from those who, uh, to whom it's due. This is in line with being good at giving compliments, and it's more than just words. It's, you know, if someone deserves appreciation or someone deserves help, go help them. Give it to them. When it comes to helping people, it's better for you to be accused of being too generous rather than too stingy. You see someone, like, you know, putting stuff away, go help them if they deserve it. <laughs> to whom it is due, right? <laughs> if they're lazy and they're putting stuff away, you're like, oh, that's good. <laughs> Give them some exercise. But, you know, okay, you get it. All right, number two, pay back on time. Pay back on time. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 28. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again tomorrow. I will give it when you have it with you. Right? If you're bad at paying people back, that news spreads. It spreads. How do I know? Because people tell me all the time who didn't pay them back. All the time. That news spreads. It takes a very long time to undo that kind of reputation. People come up and say, this person's not paying me back. They didn't Venmo me back or something. And like, what do I do? And I'm like, I don't I'm not your accountant, right? I'm not like your troubleshooter for, for your financial transactions. I don't know, but go settle it with them. But if, if you have borrowed something, give it back on time. Don't be the person that, that doesn't do that because that immediately forfeits all the respect that people have for you. It just jettisons all of their positive regard if they feel like you don't care. You don't realize, you don't, you don't notice, you don't care, and you're just going to take from them and you don't give back. It reveals how one-sided that relationship is. Payback on time. Third, reconcile quickly. Now, this, is, uh, this is a no-brainer because it's kind of consistent with all the stuff we've been talking about. Reconcile quickly. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. And that idea of letting out water is talking about a dam. You know, uh, w once there's a breach, it very quickly gets worse. And so th the idea is like, watch out for people that bottle things up, and then all of a sudden it just lets out water, and then boom, everything comes at once. Reconciling quickly is how people discover that you value their feelings, and you care about being right with them. Don't let them bottle it up, and then one day it breaks open like a dam. No, you want people who, uh, who want to walk with you and, and, and stride with you, and when something's wrong, they reconcile quickly. So quit before the quarrel breaks out, right? Deal with the matter before it turns into something bad. All right, number four, don't exploit people. Don't exploit people. Meaning like don't use people or don't, uh, don't just take and, and not appreciate it, et cetera. Proverbs 25, verse 17. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. That's a funny proverb, and, uh, you know, it's, it's not wrong to be in your neighbor's house. It's not. But notice the neighbor is called neighbor instead of your friend, right? You're not, like, there yet. 
He's just your neighbor. He's not your friend. Don't be in your neighbor's house all the time. This is exploitation. It's about overstaying your welcome. It's, you know, using people or taking more than you're offered. It's that kind of stuff. Uh, it's, there's a different modern proverb that I've heard before. It, it goes, um, after three days, fish and guests begin to smell. It makes sense. If you're ever wondering, like, how long should I stay? Mm, three days. That's maybe the max, right? Uh, it's... It's just this idea that, like, you might be overstaying your welcome. You might be taking more than you're giving. You're not, you're not contributing as much as you're consuming. And th- th- it's, it's this idea to be careful of that. Generally speaking, you should always seek to be, uh, to be more of a blessing to the other person than you're taking from that person. Contribute more than you consume. In the context of this proverb, when you enter a home... Make it a better place simply by the fact that you were there, which means don't leave a mess, don't eat all the food, don't give the homeowner a reason to wish you didn't come. Don't give the homeowner a reason to wish you didn't come, right? right. The fact that you came to that house, when you leave, something incredible hopefully has happened. That Something by virtue of your presence Something good has been given. But don't go around thinking, ah, by virtue of my presence, something good is here. You know, like, don't be that guy, right? But contribute more than you consume. You get it. All right, let's let's, let's land the plane here, okay? It's conclusion time. If you look carefully at all these qualities, you'll find that not not all your friendships are perfect. Even your close friendships, they're just not perfect, right? There are are some that you've you've built and, and maybe there is something really good and healthy. I wouldn't say that it's impossible to have a healthy, good friendship. I think that, that you can have that, but it's very possible and very probable that you don't. Hopefully, you're asking yourself whether or not you are a bad friend or a good friend to the people in your life. Because it's so easy to listen to a sermon and be like, oh, yeah, 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 my husband needs to hear this. My wife needs to hear this. You know, just, it, it's really easy to do that, to glance at one another during the sermon. Hopefully, you know that the sermon's for you, right? Holy Spirit should be moving in your heart. You let the other person deal with their heart. Nobody's perfect. Perfection is the standard, yes, but direction is the key. If, if you have friends that are bad friends, but you know they're repenting and they're seeking to confess they want to be corrected. They want to accept accountability. They want to outgrow this. If you have uh, friends who, who, who struggle but are, are trying to overcome and they're, they're seeking in the right place from the word of God, from the people of God, help them. But if they're not repenting, avoid them. Hang on to those friends who are on the right direction to overcoming and let loose of those friends who are not interested in confessing and repenting of their sin. If you go through all these qualities, you you get a perfect friend. It is no wonder then that Jesus is that kind of friend for us. See, all of this is is, uh, in, in the Proverbs. The wisdom offered in the Proverbs is not just for moralism. It's always still to point you to Christ. And not not one of us really starts off with this kind of wisdom, despite our imperfection, despite the fact that we ourselves don't start off as being great 
good friends for everyone else, we are oftentimes characterized by the qualities that make a bad friend. But despite our imperfection and despite our disqualification, Jesus befriends us. He extends friendship to us. In fact, he'd go, he would go out for people who were not qualified to be around him, and yet he would extend his friendship to them in order to invite them to something better, to lead them in a good way, because that's what a good friend does, leads you to the land. And that's what Jesus would do. He would go to people who were not qualified at all, and he would take them and lead them to the land. Look at Matthew 11, verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by your deeds. The enemies of Jesus would, would accuse him. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And he would say, yes, I am. Because I'm the kind of friend that takes someone who is in a tough spot, in a bad place, and I'll lead them to the land. I'll lead them to eternity with God. Jesus is the kind of friend that makes us better. Receives you as you are, doesn't leave you as you were. He transforms you. John chapter 15, verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's precisely what Jesus did. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, that's something that I can never say or you could never say. You can't go around saying, oh, you're my friend if you do what I command you, right? That's, that comes off the wrong way. But Jesus can say that because everything that Jesus commands is always perfectly for our good. To make peace, to breed strength, to save others, to lead us to the land. And what it really takes to be a friend of Jesus is not to qualify, but simply to let go of everything that you were and just trust him. James chapter 2, verse 23, Abraham believed or trusted God. It was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. That's what it takes. Not qualifications with incredible achievements, but simply to believe, to trust and it'll be counted to you as righteousness. And you'll be called a friend of God. Friendship is the relationships that you build in order to have a sense of belonging and trust and support and camaraderie. And you have it perfectly in Jesus as you ought to build that kind of friendship with people around you. Make friends who point you to the Lord and then be the friend who points people to the Lord so that you lead one another to the land. Then you won't be alone. Then you won't be apart from Christ's body. And then you'll have and you'll be a guide that leads to the land, that leads to eternity. You'll have friendships that aren't just for fun, but friendships that are good for your soul. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words that you give on friendship. Uh, really, what do I know? Uh, I've made a mess of things myself. I know it. And yet your counsel is a light 
to our path, a lamp to our feet. Thank you so much, Lord, that you can help us to think through the ways that we regard friendships, our need for it, and what it's for, and what it should do. And we pray that we would adjust, correct our course in such a way that we would make the friends that you, as our Father, want your children to have. Not just to make those friends, but to be that kind of a friend. Help us to be a good friend. Help us to be the kind of friend that leads others to the Lord, that leads others to the land, to eternity with Jesus. Everything else fades away. We pray that we would speak graciously, that we would give good counsel, that we'd be patient, that we would make peace, and that we would avoid those things that are damaging to friendship, that are unwise in relationship. Give us the, uh, the long-suffering attitude to do that, to know that building friendship takes time, and friendships aren't always in a healthy place, and so they need to be renovated and redeemed. May we have the courage and the humility and the faith to do exactly what's necessary so that we would have good friends and be good friends. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.